You're listening to a University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences podcast. This podcast is an interview with guest lecturer Eugene Wong, who came to UK as part of the Year of China initiative. Okay, so we're here with Eugene Wong, who is Abby Aldrich, Rockefeller Professor of Asian Art at Harvard University. Uh, Professor Wong is a guest of the College of Arts and Sciences Year of China and is on campus now um, speaking to our undergraduates and will also be the keynote speaker tonight for our annual Arts Asia Symposium, and the topic for this year is Contested Ground, Visual Culture in China After 1989. Um, we're very honored to have Professor Wong with us today, so welcome to Lexington and to the University of Kentucky. Thank you. Um, Professor Wong, you began your study, your career studying medieval Buddhist art. I wanted to ask what first sparked your interest in art history in general and uh, Buddhist iconogra iconography in, the, in particular, iconography in particular. I'm always interested in how images speak its own kind of message uh, different from language. In mm -hmm. other words, uh, whether it's a Buddhist art or not, there's always something that sometimes one image can do that you would take many words to articulate. Mm. So that's why there's this saying of uh, one picture is worth a thousand words. And so I'm always fascinated by the ineffable effect the image can uh, produce to the extent that, uh, you know, for whoever wants to verbalize that effect, you will find it very challenging mm. to do so. So that's how uh, art, art history and Buddhist art also uh, draw my interest. So more interest, more recently you've been working on contemporary Chinese art, as I understand. Yesterday for our students, you lectured on contemporary Chinese art um, for the Year of China class. Um, and yesterday with the students, you were talking about what defines contemporary art. I wonder if you could um, go over that definition of contemporary art for our listeners and talk a little bit more about the generation of art artists you've been interested in. Contemporary art, contemporary Chinese art uh, in particular, is a very convenient way of providing a narrative for what has happened in the Chinese art scene since 1980, particularly in the wake of the death of Mao, because China basically entered a new age and started a new direction. And then in that historical framework, the kind of artwork that is produced distinctly has taken on a new complexion different from the so-called socialist realism of the Maoist era. And the variety of art and the, the energy and the creativity has been quite amazing. And also, since the death of Mao and the opening up of China mm -hmm. uh, started a new era in which China no longer remained isolated. So to that extent, as Chinese society was more integrated in the international community, mm -hmm. so the art also has deep engagement and dialogue with the art of other regions of the world. So in, to that extent, therefore, it is quite accurate just to say that we are now in the face of contemporary Chinese art in the same way that in terms of global art, we basically call those uh, eras, also contemporary art in general. So what, what is going on in China is in sync with what, what is going on in the world. It's part of the global mm. story. 
What are um, some of you've, you've mentioned that these contemporary Chinese artists are quite creative. Can you give some examples for the for the listeners of what kinds of topics or themes interest them, um, either in a national context or in the global context that you've spoken of? One thing that the contemporary Chinese art fascinates the rest of the world is the special ways in which they capture the dynamic of what's going on in China because the, the, the kind of change that's taking place in China in such a speed-up way is probably not rivaled by any other country in the quick and rapid change. So when you have that kind of change, you have the, the juxtaposition of the old and the new, and then with that kind of dynamic, you could imagine the what art can produce to capture that kind of dynamic um, can be fascinating. For instance, I could just name uh, the kind of work produced by Xu Bing, for instance, mm-hmm. towards the uh, late 80s. He used lots of wood blocks on which he carved characters that are basically non-existent, mm-hmm. but they are very meticulously, carefully worked out, and then he prints them out according to the old format of Chinese book, and then set them out in perfect order and with absolute ritual and uh, decorum to some extent and a seriousness. But it's a kind of text that has no meaning, but it's quite meaningful in its visual form, because you could see everything else is correct, except that the, the, the words cannot com- signify uh, what the word is supposed to signify. Mm. So that kind of art has completely fascinated the international community. And, and I think people oftentimes misunderstand what is being done in that they, they tend to take it very literally, uh, thinking that the dynamic here is the Xu Bing's iconoclastic take on traditional Chinese culture. Mm. And I don't think that's the case. Uh, he has no aversion towards traditional Chinese culture. But it is a very iconoclastic form, but it, it is staged in such a way it, it speaks to a culture in the late 80s when China was fascinated by the whole prospect of modernization. Mm. And with that, the, the mechanical reproduction and the futurity of geometric forms that signify some kind of utopian future mm. about which no one has a clear answer. Mm. But there's aspiration towards that. So I see that work as one of the moments in history of contemporary China to try to reorder our cultural resources in such a way that there's this forward-looking aspect toward it. In other words, yes, you have these characters which were done in the traditional format, but the form is not so much a total rejection of that past. It is more of how do we find ways of reorganizing, reconfiguring the traditional resources mm-hmm. and delineate a picture for the future in this highly geometric, Mm. uh, utopian way. 
So that's the interesting that. So that would just give you uh, one example of how contemporary Chinese art could be very interesting. For your um, for your keynote lecture tonight, you'll be discussing the Chinese painter Liu Xiaodong and his response to the Sichuan earthquake. Um, if readers are listening and would like to see what the photograph is, they can see it on the University of Kentucky's Asia Center website. Just click on Arts Asia Symposium. I wonder if for our readers or for our listeners, would you? Um, I'd uh, like to start off by discussing the scene that's depicted in this photograph. This is a fantastic uh, 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 painting in that uh, if you look at the photograph, you see Liu Xiaodong standing in front of the huge canvas and trying to paint on the scene a group of young women seated on the tricycle uh, against the backdrop of uh, the earthquake structures dilapidated and collapsed after the earthquake. So this is the scene is is striking in number of ways. To begin with, there is almost foolhardy nature of this project because if you want to somehow picture people in the wake of earthquake, you can just take a photograph what it means to not use photograph, but use this huge canvas, and which takes time to basically fill all the canvas with images. I mean, that takes long, long, long working hours. So why is the painting, do, uh, why is the painter doing that? I mean, that's obviously one of the questions. Mm -hmm. Another question is, these young women, except one of them, were actually not earthquake survivors. Mm. They were aspiring, want to be actress oh. uh, from city of Chongqing, ah. which is some uh, distance away from this town, Beitan. And so what is this point of getting those want to be actress? I mean, they had the painter not giving them chance, they probably wouldn't have chance to be staged in, in, in any other ways. Uh, and, and so in some ways, these are the actors who wouldn't make their actor career. And somehow, they are placed in front of this earthquake scene. And the painter's idea is a simple premise. So you have to take him, take that premise with a grain of salt, because he could be tongue-in-cheek in this, in that he says, or he thinks that, um, that the only way mankind can conquer or survive natural disasters such as earthquake is to ensure that there is reproduction. So that's why he, for this scene, this site, he uh, put together this group of young women. And then on another site that is actually uh, Lake Taihu in Jiangsu, mm -hmm and he grouped together some boys, young boys, and they were also actors. Ah. And so he painted those boys on another side and then the young woman on this side. And the unifying theme and the underlying logic is if I can have young woman and young man symbolically in this kind of symbolic union, mm. we will have reproduction and then no matter what, we can survive natural disaster and man-made disaster such as pollution in uh, Taihu. So 
how then he worked this premise out is something I will be talking about tonight. You've mentioned um, in another interview that you studied um, Leo's diary as a way of understanding artistic production. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit more about what you could learn from the diary that you couldn't learn just from looking at um, the images. Um, and is if, if the diary wasn't meant to be something um, that was going to be in dialogue with the images. Um, the diary is absolutely interesting in that it recorded all the states of mind uh, the painter went through when he was uh, doing this project. You could sense the loneliness, the observation of the, the desolation and all that. In other words, you could see that the diary almost opened up a different world that is not actually registered by the painting. Um, so there's no way one can make simple correlation between what is recorded and documented and written in the diary mm -hmm. and what is being painted mm -hmm. out. So much uh, that's much more interesting because in a way that will keep us aware of what actually uh, any painting would miss certain dimensions of human experience in some ways. Uh, on the other hand, once you uh, study the diary and you start to sense there are certain things that might be insignificant or inconspicuous in the painting, but somehow now that you know what's going on in the artist's mind, mm -hmm. you start to have a better appreciation of why certain images look the way they do. As I understand, another part of this whole project was the recording through cameras. Of the, as I understand, there were two sets of cameras uh, filming this process. I wonder if you talk a little bit more about what kind of um, understanding comes out of the uh, photography or film. And you've also mentioned that you've, you're interested in this idea of intermedia. Could you tell us more about what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, this is a really a remarkably well coordinated, orchestrated project that involves not just the, a painter executing his painting on this huge canvas in front of this uh, group of young women uh, against the background of earthquake, but you also have a camera, uh, the, both the film camera and the photographer recording what's going on. And it certainly allows us to see what kind of picture that emerge, uh, or what kind of pictures that emerge respectively from each medium. And um, so you could see that, for instance, or at least if you uh, have access to the video, the, the, the video artist had his own ways of staging this. And this, there, there's one particular revealing scene in which he, the uh, video director, recorded, if not orchestrated the, the, a scene in which these young women walked right at the foot of this dilapidated uh, earthquake-ravaged mm -hmm. structure. So the effect is to see that looming, almost sinister-looking structure absolutely dwarf these vulnerable young women mm. at the foot of the building. And curiously, for the artist, he didn't want to let that 
terrorizing aspect be the part of his painting. So instead, he would actually position these women uh, away from that building so that the, uh, you could see the human scale is almost as, if not more, mm -hmm. uh, imposing than the uh, earthquake ravaged structure. And uh, obviously, the interest is not to uh, terrorize the viewer, but more to allow one the distance through which to look at how humans uh, stand vis-a-vis -vis the earthquake ravage situation. So in, in any case, the point what I'm say, trying to make is you could see that a photograph, a snapshot, or a video can work out its own effect by way of its, the strength of the formal property of the medium, whereas for a painter, it's entirely a different story uh, to actually work out the details uh, across the surface of the canvas. Mm. Uh, and that process, since it takes time, a lot of things happen that, in other words, things may start it in one way, as I will talk about tonight, and then it may end up another way. Uh, you know, it's a work, working process, and it's a working progress, and, and in that progress, things change, and the painting somehow can register uh, that kind of changing process. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the, in the, I'm, I'm very interested in the media, because we are, we are in this age when we can talk about, we talk about art, and we are no longer talking about art of any particular medium, because mm -hmm. obviously nowadays, especially in contemporary art, uh, artists' uh, projects tend to involve multimedia, mm -hmm. and that's just our age and our, our uh, sensibility. So I'm, I'm very interested in how, how um, different mediums work in tandem with another, and to that effect, Liu Xiaodong's project is really mm -hmm. the most exemplary. Mm. I was thinking of a theme that, that links your lecture to, to the undergraduates last night and uh, this, uh, your keynote speech. And um, the theme I, I thought about was the idea of national narratives. So uh, yesterday evening with the students, you made the argument that these portraits of individuals um, in some ways inverted the uh, traditional idea of a national narrative by offering uh, the story of an individual. Um, and then here, with this particular image production, you're suggesting that um, Liu Xiaozhong and the generation of neorealists rejects national narratives. Um, the the way uh, this image is um, understood contrasts, uh, or the portrayal of the earthquake's aftermath in, in Leo, Leo's work contrasts with official narratives of the earthquake and the aftermath in Chinese state media. Um, to what degree does this um, painterly rejection of national narrative reflect um, other moods in contemporary China, whether it's for contemporary Chinese writers, authors, um, or uh, society at large? Mm. Um, that's a good question. Um, as soon as earthquake ha occurred, uh, you would have media uh, covering uh, the earthquake rescues and uh, operations and, and so on and so forth. Um, 
there's nothing particularly wrong with the national narrative or uh, uh, contrived or constructed or produced by the media. Obviously, the media would have its, its own ways of doing things. Uh, and that's not in China, in the U.S., elsewhere in the world. That's the same. In other words, uh, there yeah. are certain kind of commonly shared assumptions that would drive the media to uh, use uh, their camera and uh, reporting skills to fill up certain kind of stories. Sure. And, and uh, so, um, <coughs> and in the case of the coverage of the earthquake, uh, the typical story that emerges out of it is typically uh, you know, rescue operation, the emphatic uh, support, the sympathy, widespread sympathy, the leadership of the uh, government, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it's not that you know they are wrong, or, but after a while you just feel that uh, it's so packaged and so created in a certain predictable way, mm-hmm. you start to have suspicion that something must be left out. In other words, even everything that media coverage is true, uh, there is some, surely some kind of blind spots or certain aspects of this horrendous experience that is earthquake uh, must have been left out of this larger Mm -hmm. narrative. So Liu Xiaodong was not setting out to challenge, even reject the national narrative. Mm -hmm. He just didn't want to have anything to do with the national narrative. In other words, uh, he's, it's, it's not, so I, I want to clarify that he's not rejecting the national narrative. He's more of, okay, yes, you have that media-created uh, uh, kind of narrative. You can live with that. But in the same, at the same time, let me also offer a different kind of perspective, mm-hmm. a different kind of coverage. Uh, He's not doing news coverage, and, and he, it's not his interest to mm-hmm. actually uh, to report on anything. That's why I think he very wisely uh, hired these uh, wannabe actors to be the models mm-hmm. so that he's not making truth claims about what happened to the earthquake. See. But what is it that can uh, arise from such a s- staging? And what it can make you think, that's much more important to him. And, and he, for instance, is also interested in the uh, symbol of animals, how animals survive the earthquake mm-hmm. and become the sort of almost uh, uh, figure of loneliness and so forth. And very curiously, there is this uh, story that... Uh, was reported by media um, about an earthquake survivor who somehow had psychological trauma and he basically killed himself and his wife. And then he, their surviving son, when the journalists went to uh, cover the story, uh, was looking at a dog. Mm-hmm. And a photojournalist took a picture of that uh, scene. And remarkably, it's a s- uh, inadvertently, the same kind of attention that Liu Xiaodong was paying mm. to dogs. 
so so what these if you put these two side by side and together and you have a sense that there are certain pockets of experience that is not accommodated for by the uh, larger national narrative uh, the support the rescue and so that uh, there are certain psychological uh, dimensions uh, trauma and so forth that has such depth and they're not neatly they cannot be neatly packaged so what I guess the usual the project reviews is those kind of pockets mm. that normally uh, the medium constructed narrative wouldn't possibly convey thank you so much I'd like to um perhaps wrap up our interview by asking one question that I thought might be appealing to a general audience. Um, and the question is this, if one of our students or a member of the community in Lexington was approaching Chinese art for the first time, let's say they'd never studied Chinese art before, but they were going to go to an art museum in Chicago or Boston or New York, um, what genre of art or what object would you suggest they, they go in and look for and how how should they understand it, and why would you choose that object or genre as a suitable introduction to Chinese art? Are you talking about uh, Chinese art in general? Or in general, what they might encounter at a typical comprehensive museum like the Art Institute in Chicago or um, the Metropolitan Museum in New York. That is a tough call because <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are so many uh, uh, Objects what that, would be uh, a starting point? What would be the starting point? Um, just off the top of my head, um, I will start with a little shrine mm. uh, made of stone uh, dating to the 6th century. It's in uh, Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Okay. It's, it's covered with scenes of filial piety and many mm. other scenes and it was made by uh, a son in veneration of his parents. It's ha it has an extraordinary relief carving on the service and uh, the story, the filial piety story is kind of interesting because you know it, it conveys a sort of traditional Chinese culture mm -hmm. in some distinct ways, but overall it's not just because the shrine has these filial piety scenes, but it's the curious combination of different scenes, because just as you have filial piety scenes, you also have a quite mysterious scene at the back of the shrine mm -hmm. of three male figures, each as a female companion, and the male figure is holding a lotus flower in his hand. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what do these mysterious? I mean, no, actually, have quite figure. I mean, I have some answer to this, but that takes longer than <laughs> this occasion can can provide to explain. So I, I won't explain that, but just to say that these are very mysterious figures. Mm -hmm. uh, why they are carved at the back of the shrine, and what is the relationship between those figures with those filial piety scenes. Mm. And also, uh, that shrine actually was initially buried as a coffin in a tomb. Mm. So 
if so, so we go to the gallery thinking that we are looking at art objects that is put on display mm -hmm. for museum go goers and, and visitors. Just imagine this curious situation that actually you have this quite ornately carved object with all sorts of pictorial programs adorning its surfaces inside and out, but it wasn't for public view. It was actually buried on the ground. So what is the point of putting an object with all these pictorial carvings mm -hmm. that was not meant wow. to be seen? And I'll leave you with that question. Well, thank you so much. Next time I go to Boston, <laughs> I will go to the MFA and look for the, the shrine. Yes. Um, okay. Thank you so much, Professor Wong, for your time and for coming to visit us here at the University of Kentucky. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences for making this podcast possible. For more information on the Year of China initiative, go to china.as.uky.edu.